The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Welcome, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage. Uh, honored to be able to bring to you the word this morning as we continue our study in the book of Daniel. I would encourage you, if you uh, brought a Bible today, to open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to be in the second half of the book beginning in verse 19 today. We are, we are halfway through the first half of Daniel. Now, I know that's a little weird way to say that we're a quarter way through the book, but if you look at the structure of Daniel, it kind of presents as two unique halves. There's a first half, chapters 1 through 6, which kind of focus on the story of Daniel. And then the second half of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, focus on, on the visions of Daniel. We're going to wrap up chapter 3 today, hence we are halfway through the first half of the narrative portion of Daniel. If you were here last week, we, we looked at the first 18 verses in a chapter that no doubt, even if you're not a church person or a Bible person, you probably have heard of the, the story of the fiery furnace. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're in the middle of that story today as we pick up in verse 19. If you were here last week, the scene opens on the plain of Dura, which is where the Tower of Babel was built. And here we are centuries later under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, and he erected uh, an idol or an image that was nine stories tall, nine feet wide, a golden needle-like structure that he was commanding all the people, really the who's who in the, the Babylonian Empire, to, to bow down to this idol that reflected sort of the rule and reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. And we saw where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just couldn't do that. They, they wouldn't bow down to, to an idol. They knew that the law of God forbid them from doing that. And so we learned last week that in standing for God— in a fallen world, the faithful will face the command of the world to worship the worldly. We unpacked that. We learned last week that in standing for God in a fallen world, the faithful will face the commitment by the ungodly to destroy the godly. And lastly, we learned last week that in standing for God in a fallen world, the faithful will need the courage to trust in the sovereign will of God. We spent quite a bit of time on that as well last week. We kind of summarized, I borrowed a phrase from, a, from an author, and here's what he said about Daniel, or rather about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He said, they would rather be delivered into the presence of God through fire than worship a false god just to escape fire. And so we, went, we left off last week with this incredibly courageous statement by these three Hebrew men to the king. So what I want to do today is I want to read through the rest of the chapter. I know it's a lot of verses. It's a compelling narrative. So let's pick up in verse 16. We'll pick up the three last verses from last week, and we're going to read through the entirety of this story to its resolution. Daniel 3, verses 16 through 30. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, and they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. 
Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered, and they said to the king, True, O king. He answered, and he said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and he said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, and language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. As I read through that text, there's a lot, and we're going to spend some time in it today. If I were to try to step back and observe verses 19 through 30. And if I were to try to encapsulate the content of those many verses into a single idea or a single argument, here's what it would be. God is present with his own in the fire and sees them through. I think if I were to summarize what's taking place in these few verses, I would say that it is God is present with his own in the fire and he sees them through. We'll work through it here in a moment together, but first, would you join me in a word of prayer? Oh, Father, I'm grateful for the men and women you've gathered here today and grateful for the privilege you, get, you have given us to be able to gather in this place and to, to, to worship you, God, in our, in, our, in our hearts and in our minds and with our voices and our ears. And God, we ask today as we sit under this word, this, this, this living word, that you would use it, God, to encourage us and to stir us up and to convict us and to, to call us into obedience. God, pray that as we study this text and as we fix our eyes on you, that our, our, our understanding of you and our perspective of you would grow and that you would become bigger in this place today. And as you become bigger, God, I pray that our worship would grow all the more sincere we love you and we invite you to meet us in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now David and Tiara Barrett, they were on a date night uh, in a suburb of Indiana a few years ago. They're on a date. They have four kids at home from 18 to 1. In the middle is a 13-year-old daughter who's got a friend who's spending the night in their home in Lafayette, Indiana. And they're on this date having a good time. Their 18-year-old daughter is at home watching the other kids, plus this girl that's over for a sleep, over five, five kids total, if you count an 18-year-old a kid. And, and in the middle of the date, towards the end of the date, actually, they get a phone call. David gets a call on his cell phone, and it's his daughter, his 18-year-old daughter. 
Her name is Siona, and, and as he picks up the phone, she's, she's panicked on the other line. Their house is, in, is engulfed in flames. It's filled with smoke, and all five kids are still in the house. You can imagine the, the fear and the horror that spread across David's mind as he relayed this fact to his wife. They sprinted out of the restaurant. They sprinted to their car, pedaled to the metal. They're driving as fast as they can across town to get to their kids. Not even sure if there's fire trucks there, if 911 has been called. I just imagine that panicked car ride as a dad. I can imagine the prayers that are being lifted, the panic that was filling that car. I think about that poor 18-year-old girl who felt a certain sense of responsibility over these kids. She was babysitting this 18-year-old Siona. The home is on fire, and she's trying to figure out what to do. Meanwhile, in that neighborhood, someone utterly unrelated or disconnected from this family was driving through the neighborhood. He was a pizza guy. His name was Nick Bostick. He somehow saw the flames and the smoke rising from this home, this suburban home. He pulled his car over and he runs into the house. He, he pushes open the front door, uh, a living room filled with smoke. Halfway up the stairs, he runs into Siona. He sees she's trying to get all the kids out. And so he helps her and he gives her strength and courage. And he comes alongside her and together they usher. And he gets everyone to the door. He gets them out the door, gets them on the front lawn and they're safe. Except they realize there's only, there's only four on the lawn. Little six-year-old baby Kay is somewhere in the house. Her name was Kilani. And so using courage and fear and whatever else you can muster up, this young man, this 20-something-year-old man, Nick, he runs back into the house, back into the smoke, back into the flames with the four outside. He begins to shout for this little six-year-old girl, baby Kay. He's trying to find her. He can't see anything. The smoke is choking him and it's black. His eyes are closed. Only by the, the sense of hearing does he work his way up the stairs, work his way into a room where he finds baby Kay. He scoops her up in his arms. There's no way he can go back down through the flames. He kicks the glass out of a second-story window and he jumps out of the window, saving baby Kay, he, he delivers her to first responders and collapses on the street. And they, they begin to render aid. And about this time, mom and dad show up and they're panicked, terrified. The first responders notify mom and dad that everybody is going to be okay. They all got outside. What a cool story. The love and the courage and the selflessness for this young man to go into the flames on behalf of another is beautiful, courageous, selfless, loving. I imagine how afraid Siona must have felt in that black smoke trying to, trying to corral all these kids and how comforting seeing the face of someone there to help her must have been. The presence of another with her in the flames had to have been so comforting. She wasn't in this alone. David, the father, later on was quoted by the local media as saying that God uses the most unlikely characters. He sent an angel. Nick Bostick chose to enter the flames to be present with those inside to help deliver them from the fire, and as a result, he was awarded with the Carnegie Medal, which is the nation's highest honor a civilian can receive for heroism. Oh, to be with another in the fire. At the end of our text today, we, we listen to the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, and in the middle of our text today, we see the eyewitness of Nebuchadnezzar, as he looks into the fire, he sees another one in there with the three men. One who has the appearance of the son of the gods. One who is an angel, depending on which part of the chapter you focus in on. And I'm reminded what our text tells us today, that God is present with his own in the fire, and he sees them through. 
And it's interesting to me that as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were bound and thrown into the fire, God didn't observe their plight from afar. He was present with them in the fire. In the midst of the most harrowing and horrific of experiences. So I wonder, I wonder if you know, if you know the comfort of presence. I'm wondering, do you know the, the, the comforting presence of another in your moments of suffering? I, I was thinking about this today as I prepared my, my teaching this morning. I was thinking about a mother who denies herself sleep to lay next to a sick child as they're suffering through the flu symptoms all night, laying next to their child to offer comfort. I, I was thinking of my dad, actually, but a husband who sits side by side with his wife through the countless hours and many, many, many days of cancer treatment just to be present. I was thinking of a longtime friend who travels great distance to sit alongside the friend, an old friend, at the funeral of her spouse to be present in that pain. I think of the first responder who wades through the wreckage to make eye contact with the surviving victim trapped in a vehicle to grab the hand of the surviving victim to give them comfort until they're removed from the wreckage. I think of a friend who's suffering through the darkest season of betrayal he's ever experienced and who just has some friends on either side of him just loving him in the midst of the pain. We often call this the ministry of presence. I mean, because none of us want to suffer alone. It's so incredibly powerful when someone can be with us in the midst of those days, not to offer a cure, or answers. We don't need that in those moments, but someone who's there to care for us, be with us, endure alongside us, to be present. How comforting to know that it is in the character of God to be present with those he loves in the midst of calamity or adversity or difficulty or pain. How comforting is it to know that our God is one who is present with his own in the fire. And not only is he present, but he then sees his own through the fire. So as we look back at our text, I, I want to journey through our passage. I see a couple, I see three movements in our passage I want to draw your attention to. But first, before we do that, I, I want to take a half a step back and kind of remind us of some of the large themes that hold the book of Daniel together that I think are important for us. We need to kind of continue to remind ourselves of these things as we journey through this book. If you were to have been here on the first week that we introduced this book back in, in early September, we talked about how the prophet Jeremiah gives us a framework for how we are to think about what's taking place in Babylon in the book of, of Daniel. In Jeremiah 25, the prophet Jeremiah said that God was going to send his good figs into exile. So it is, the, it, is the, it is the remnant of God's faithful that he sends into exile. And he sends them into Babylon. And if you read in Jeremiah 29, as God sends his own into Babylon, he, he sends them into a place where he wants his people to be. Babylon is the place where God wants his people to kind of plant gardens and get married and build houses. And in the welfare of the city, they'll find their own welfare. And so we had a couple of terms we defined. I want to remind these of you on the screen. In the book of Daniel, the word exile are those under God's favor sent to do God's work. That's important because oftentimes when we think of exile biblically, we think it's those who are being punished by God and therefore exiled. That's not the case in Daniel. In Daniel, the exile are those who are the good figs who are under God's favor sent to do God's work. And then the, the, the Babylon. In the Bible, Babylon is synonymous with the world and the brokenness of the world. However, in the book of Daniel, we need to remind ourselves that Babylon is the place where God's people are meant to be and where productive work is meant to happen for the glory of God. 
So those are two important distinctions on how we read those two words in the book of Daniel. It gives us a framework. And again, the first six chapters of Daniel, we have these narrative stories, and we are reminded that God has sent his people into Babylon that they can be at home in Babylon, build homes, get married, give their sons and daughters in marriage for the welfare of the city to find your own welfare. It's also a place where God sends his own that, 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 he, that they can speak his word into the world. God has a word for the world and he sends his exiles into Babylon where they can be at home for a season. And, and as we introduced this book, we just realized and reminded ourselves that the New Testament authors, especially Peter, tells us that we're exiles. As born-again followers of Jesus in the church of Christ, you and I, we are exiles. This is not our home. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Peter calls us exiles, sojourners, foreigners. And we are trying to live faithful lives in the world that we don't really belong to. We've been sent here by God. We have a word for the world just like Daniel and his friends. And so in the study of this book, we get a really cool framework for how it is that God is calling us to walk in faithfulness. As Christians, as men and women who have been born again, who have been adopted into the family of God, we are citizens of God's heavenly kingdom, and we are living under the authority of King Jesus. So that's the framework. As we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's the framework of their existence here in this scene. Sent by God into Babylon with a word for the world, living as exiles in a foreign land. Okay. Look with me at verse 23. I want you to underline or highlight this verse, half of this verse, if you're the kind of person that does that. Notice the language at the end of verse 23 where it says, These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. If you want to circle that or underline that, as, as we're looking at these first five verses, we see this angry king... And he's persecuting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we see them, they're falling bound into a burning, fiery furnace. Here's the first thing I'd encourage you to write down if you're a note taker. In this story of, of fury, the furnace, and God's favor, we see them bound and into the fire. We see these men bound and into the fire. They had spoken in verses 17 and 18 with Nebuchadnezzar. They said, hey, our God is a God who's going to deliver us, but even if he doesn't deliver us, he, be, he may choose not to, we're still not going to bow down to your idol. And so we see them in this moment. The king is furious. And we see some really unique language in these few verses. They're, they're confronted with this, this murderously furious king. There's this impossibly hot furnace roiling in the background. They're bound and led away by the strongest soldiers. And they're mercilessly tossed into the flames. All hope seems lost. If you're watching a movie or reading a novel or a television show, this is the apex of the story. If we were just to stop reading at verse 23, you would think all hope is lost. You would think this is the end of the story. It's the cliffhanger. It's where there would be a commercial break. It's a riveting story. And there's purposeful, uh, the, the author Daniel uses this purposeful language that is so extreme. He became filled with fury. He was so angry that his face became distorted with rage. He orders the furnace heated seven times hotter than normal. In other words, that's just... He wants that furnace as hot as it can possibly be. He wants that furnace at the absolute maximum intensity. And then as if the flames weren't enough, he, he binds these men as if they're going to punch the flames away if they're not bound. And then he takes the strongest, mightiest men in his armies and he leads them up into the furnace and tosses them in. So hot, in fact, that these men 
just because of their proximity to this fiery furnace, these strong, mighty men die. I mean, this enraged king, he's so enraged, it's not enough just to kill these guys. He, 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 wants, to, he wants to super kill them. He wants, he's super mad, the furnace is super hot, his executioners are super strong, and he wants these guys super dead. He is so angry. If he could kill each one of them five times, he would. Because remember, this was his day. This was a, fa- a, 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 a it should have been a flagship day in the, in the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. His idol had been set up on the plain. I mean, nine stories tall, this golden idol. He's commanded everybody to bow down in reverence, and everybody has bowed down except these three Hebrew men. And they've hijacked his day, and he's furious. And remember, this is all happening in the same day, because remember what the text said earlier in chapter 3, that whoever didn't bow down was threatened with being thrown into the fiery furnace immediately? So as this idol is stretching into the desert sky, this furnace is burning, and so all these who's who of the Babylonian empire are present on this day. They saw those three men who refused to bow down at the king's orders. The king is embarrassed, he's furious, he's mad, he wants to enact revenge. They refused to bow down at his warning, and so now he wants them super dead. And all those men and women who are gathered for this coronation of this idol, they're watching in baited anticipation. I mean, these are those high officials and governors and officers and advisors and treasurers and judges and magistrates of the, of the province. They are the most powerful people. And they're watching as these Hebrews have hijacked the king's day, as the furnace is burning. Now we look at that furnace that's burning, and it's burning hot. It's seven times hotter than normal. And we got to think about fire. We talked about this last week a little bit. In the Bible, we see the fire associated with a couple of things. Obviously, the fire, fire is associated with judgment. You don't have to turn far in the Bible, in either the Old or New Testament, to see that fire is, is judgment. But fire is also, it's also a means of refinement or purification. I mean, no doubt fire destroys. We all know that. But it also tests. Fire has a way of testing the true nature of something. In my first church I ever worked at, we were in this town in central Wisconsin called Wapaka. And there's this huge foundry in Wapaka called the Wapaka Foundry. It employs like 2,000 guys. It's huge. It's the, oh, the, the backbone of the economy of that little town. So in my church that I pastored, like two-thirds of the guys in my church worked at the foundry. It was, it was the whole identity of the city. But these guys were always working in these rooms with metals, and there were metallurgists, and there were people who knew their way around metals and around the refining process and around what it took to work with metals. And I had this one friend who was a worship leader, and he often would talk about the refining process of gold. And he would talk about how in gold refining, fire is the best way to refine it. You, you put the gold in this crucible, and using billows, you can heat fire to like 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. You can get so hot and that gold melts and then the person who's refining it stirs the gold and as they stir the gold, the impurities rise at the top. They call it dross and as those impurities rise at the top, you skim off the impurities and you stir it some more and the impurities rise at the top and you skim it off and you repeat that process and that's the refining of gold. The impurities are boiled out of the gold through heat and through stirring. And the image in the spiritual life is that as God allows us to go into the fires of life, it stirs us, it 
exposes us to a heat, but what he's doing is he is sanctifying out of us the impurities, and he's skimming them off the top, that we are more pure, more holy, refined for his glory. And my one friend said, and I don't know that, I've never done this myself, but he said, when you have gold as pure as it can possibly be, it becomes a golden mirror. And when you look in this pure, pure, pure gold, it, gives, it offers a reflection. And the image here being that when God refines his people, that they reflect his image to the world around them. That there's a unique quality to, to the fires of life, to the refining processes that we go through that allows us to more accurately reflect God to the world around us. I love that picture. Again, going back to the Apostle Peter, he, he spoke often about, about fire in the, in the life of discipleship. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, as Peter writes a letter to men and women who are suffering, church, church members who are being persecuted, he says to them, be glad in your suffering. He says, there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine, it's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. And then later on in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so this is the Christian life often. Trying to figure out what to do with those moments in life when we feel like we're being stirred or we're being exposed to intense heat. Those moments in our life of fury and rage. Those moments in life when we feel like we're being exposed to extreme heat, nothing good can come from this, we find ourselves saying to God. I mean, I look at the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, they stood for God when everybody else fell on their face in worship of the world. They, they stood for God, three men, in a sea of conformists. And they spoke for God in the presence of the king when threatened with death. Even though they did everything right, even though they were exemplary in their trust of God, their, their obedience to God in the face of persecution, in the face of the fire, even though they did all of that right, the fire of judgment still came up all around them. And so we see that in this story of fury, the furnace in God's favor, we see that the faithful were bound and they were put into the fire. As we look on to verses 24 through 27, we see another kind of unit of thought here. We see the king who's astonished, and we see these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're preserved. Pay attention with me, if you would, to a little phrase in verse 25. I'd encourage you to underline this as well, where the king is, is speaking, and he's looking into the fire, and he says, I see four men unbound. Underline that, circle that, highlight that. The king's testimony as he's looking into the fire is to say, wait a second, I know I put three dudes in there, but I see four men. I put three dudes in there that were bound, but as I look in the fire, I see four men unbound. And so the second thing I'd encourage you to write down is that in this story of fury, the furnace, and God's favor, we see them unbound, not alone, and out of the fire. We see them unbound, not alone and out of the fire. 
I mean, we've gone so uh, accustomed to the story. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you know, you've probably heard this in Sunday school. You've read this story a bunch. It's so used. It's part of pop culture. So we're very exposed to this story of how the fire didn't touch them and their hair wasn't singed and their clothes weren't burnt and they didn't smell of smoke. And I think sometimes when you become so familiar with something, you, you, you lose your sense of wonder or awe. We, we shouldn't lose our sense of wonder or awe at what the king sees. I mean, this is an incredible set of circumstances. It's insane, the story that as it unfolds. This furnace is cooking and cooking and cooking, and, and, and the king is furious, so they're, they're, they're using billows to make the, the fire as hot as it can possibly be. And if you were someone who happened to be in the crowd that day, and you're watching these three Hebrew guys who are sort of humble, sort of sheepish, but super courageous, they're not pounding their chest, they're not screaming and yelling, they're just standing in, in, in quiet defiance to this king's edict to bow down to a false god. And you had to be watching this in amazement as the king was furious and his, his temper raged and as the fire grew all the hotter. And as you watched his face get distorted with anger and as you watched them tie the men's hands behind their back and you see these muscle-bound soldiers of the king grab these guys and you're watching as they lead them up to this raging fire and as they get tossed off the edge. Can you imagine the horror of watching three men thrown into a fire? I mean, horrible. I mean, utterly horrible. And you're watching as these men who threw them in the fire can't make it back and they start collapsing in close proximity to the furnace and you're watching them slowly die as their flesh is melting off their body. It's a horrific scene. You can hear the gasps of the crowd as they witness the carnage. What's interesting about Daniel is that as we kind of see this scene unfold in verses 24 through 27, he doesn't just give us a play-by-play -play as a narrator or as a reporter, we kind of see it through the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar. We learn that there's a fourth man in the furnace through the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. We learn that these men come out alive through the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar. It's, it's the words of Nebi that kind of give us the revelation of what's taking place in this moment. I like how the New Living Translation puts it. Suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and he exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them in the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Verse 25, look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Our text reminds us today that God is present with his own in the fire, and he sees them through. And then the king, he gets as close to the furnace as he can get. The heat was hard on his eyes, was burning his skin, but he's trying to see what's going on. He's trying to peer into this thing that's unfolding before his very eyes. Maybe he's forgotten at this point that all the leering eyes of all the subjects in his kingdom are on him. He's so enamored, so bewildered, so amazed by what's happening. He's getting as close as he can, and he shouts, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of Most High God, come out! Come to me! And in the most astounding twist of events, maybe one of the most astounding occurrences in all of human history, out walk three Hebrew men. Presumably they passed by or over the bodies of those mighty men who tied them up and threw them in the furnace. And as they emerged from the flames, the fourth man is no longer present. The eyes of the king and all the onlookers are fixed on them. Like, what are these men going to say? What is going to happen? What is going on right now? But as they walk out, shockingly, their clothes aren't singed, their skin isn't falling off their bodies, their hair isn't gone. They're, they look as if they'd never been in the fire. Hair's not singed, clothes appear untouched by flames, they don't even smell like smoke or ash. And again, we're reminded 
that fire does two things. On the one hand, it judges the mighty men of King Nebuchadnezzar unto death. On the other hand, it brings Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into an experience of God's salvation and into life. Do you see the two things that fire does? Rather than become objects of kingly wrath, the flames ushered them into an experience of divine favor, one author writes. Fire didn't, didn't burn their hair, their clothes, or their skin, but it did burn one thing. Did you notice the one thing that the fire did burn? It burned the ropes or the shackles that bound them. He said, I noticed them unbound in the fire. Isn't that interesting? That though their bodies and their clothes and their hair wasn't affected, the very thing that bound them was removed by the fire. Man, I can tell you of a thousand stories, man, at the risk of being too allegory, telling too much of an allegory of this story. I'm a guy, and my family, we grew up with so much addiction in my family, and and it might not be the best application, but I can tell you of, of how God has used the crushing consequences of addiction in the lives of my family members to help them find freedom from addiction. In addiction or rehab or the 12 steps, we call this the bottom of the barrel. When you are powerless, your, your life has become unmanageable, unmanageable and you're powerless to change it. And when you are in the, the fiery furnace of your own poor choices, the fiery furnace of addiction, when family has crumbled around you, God in his grace has a way of using that furnace to somehow burn away those things that bind us, the addictions that bind us. I think of people who, who had false ideas about themselves and about God their whole lives, whether it was legalism or a lack of grace or they held shame, they could not entrust to God and they held it their whole lives and they, they worked through their spiritual lives like half a person and they had this caricatured, stilted understanding of God and grace and the gospel and then through life's horrors, life's losses, life's difficulties, as someone was ushered into the valley of the shadow of death where they no longer held on to like this image of God or this transactional understanding of God, but through just really difficult seasons, through the fiery furnace of life, as people encountered the God of grace, a God who saves. They, they encountered a God who was bigger than them, and they realized, I don't need to carry this shame anymore. I don't need to be a legalist anymore. I, I know God for who he is now, and I wouldn't have known him had the fiery furnace not happened in my life. I don't want to get too off track, but it's not the right application here to say that God is going to release you from every trial and save you from every challenge. That's not what we see happening here. Faithfulness does not mean deliverance from temporal circumstances. Someone in our study last week commented as he was summarizing the whole text. He said, notice that God did not rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire. He met them in the fire and delivered them through the fire. Applying this passage, we we also see that this, this is a story about persecution. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are being persecuted because they chose to stand for God. And I know as we as Americans haven't experienced a whole lot of persecution, like real persecution for our Christian faith like they experience in many other places around the world. But like I said on on week number one, I believe that the, the winds have changed in America. The winds in the West have changed. And I think in our lifetime, there's going to be real persecution that we're going to have to deal with as followers of Jesus. I believe that's going to be something that awaits us. 
Here's what David Helm writes in his commentary. He said, those who bow to Christ will have foes in this life. And yet in the crucible of judgment, either now or in the end, God will see his people through. For all who know him, fire has the purpose of refinement as it reveals that we do belong to God and that God is committed to us. I mean, Lord knows that the people of God suffer in many ways as we journey through our own fires. The fourth man in the fiery furnace, unlike Nick in the opening story of my sermon, Nick was chiefly concerned with getting out of the flames and getting others out of the flames. The fourth man in our story appears as if the one who looks like a son of God just seemed to be content to simply be with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We read that they were walking in the midst of the fire. They weren't running out in desperation out of the fire. He met them in the fire, and he walked with them in the midst of the fire. There's, there's something to that language. There's something to that. There's a deep knowing of God that comes with walking him in the midst of the fire, of being with him in the flames. How awesome to know that our God is present with his own in the fire, and he sees them through. Lastly, I would encourage you to look at verses 28 and 30. In, in amazement, as these men walk out and they're delivered, Nebuchadnezzar provides incredible praise, an incredible testimony. Daniel quotes the words of Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 28. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, says Daniel, or says Nebuchadnezzar. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him. If you're an underliner or a highlighter, I would just encourage you to highlight that first half of the statement of, of Nebi here. And here's the third thing I'd encourage you to write down. In this story of fury, the furnace, and the favor of God, we see them delivered and God glorified. We see these men delivered while God is glorified. Notice who makes note of the deliverance in Daniel's story. No doubt Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, no doubt they were extolling the, the, the delivering power of God when they came. I doubt that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tight-lipped as they walked out of the furnace. Maybe they were. But Daniel chose, for our benefit, and the Holy Spirit chose to inspire Daniel to give us the words of Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king who was observing the hand of God at work in the life of these faithful Hebrew men. It's Nebuchadnezzar who extols the delivering power of God. He offers praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He promotes them, in fact, thus giving God more glory. God is glorified in their deliverance. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego aren't lifted up on a pedestal. The God who delivered them is lifted up on a pedestal. Amen. That's how it should be. I've said this from the very beginning. It's easy for us to moralize these Old Testament passages and say, be like Daniel. No, don't be like Daniel. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is look to God and in a reverent awe, worship this God who is a delivering God. I, I can't help but notice the, the evolution of Nebuchadnezzar over the last two chapters. I mean, at the end of chapter two, if you remember, as is, is, is Daniel provided interpretation of a dream that troubled his spirit, the very end of chapter 2, Daniel, or Nebuchadnezzar is quoted as saying to Daniel, Daniel, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. And he refers to God, Yahweh, the one true God. He refers to him as Daniel's God, your God, Daniel. And then by the time we get in chapter 3, as we looked about at last week, he he's like, seems like he's forgotten that entirely, and he even mocks God. In verse 15 of Daniel chapter 3, he says, Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? 
sort of in mockery of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But then at the very end of his statement today, in verse 29, he says, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Do you see the movement there? You see the heart of Nebuchadnezzar being softened? Not fully, we're going to get more into that next week, but you see the movement. Daniel's God was one of the gods in chapter 2. In the middle of chapter 3, he was mocking their God. But at the end of chapter 3, he's like, no, 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 no. This is the only God who delivers. This, is, this, is, this, this God is set above the other gods. There is no other God who's able to rescue in this way. We can see, because of the faithful witness of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's understanding of God is getting tightened as he watches these men faithfully walk with him, largely in times of trial. He's no longer one of the gods. He's the only God who can rescue. And I think we can't forget or miss out on the fact that God chose to deliver these men in the presence of a multitude. As these people were bowing down to the image made by Nebi, they, those who saw the deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego undoubtedly knew that these are the three men who didn't bow down to this image. That had to be, that was, that was powerful in their experience. And I think about if God had chosen to do things differently. I wonder how the story would be different if God caused the fire just to go out. He sent rain from heaven or a, a wind from heaven or he just stopped the fire from burning in the furnace so there was nothing to burn Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He could have done it. He didn't, but he could have. He could have sent an army at that very minute to overthrow the armies of Nebuchadnezzar and rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at the last minute. He could have done it, but he just didn't do it that way. He could have caused the image to topple and to uh, bring confusion to the gathering and thus save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He didn't do it, though. Would the, would the witness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego been the same had God chosen to deliver them from the fire rather than in the fire? What do you think? I mean, would the witness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego been as effective, would have been as far-reaching had God chosen to deliver them from the fire before the flames rather than in the midst of the fire? It seems to me the longer I walk with the Lord and the longer I see people around me walk with the Lord, it seems to me that an unbelieving world is far more interested in our God, not when things are going well in the lives of those who call him God, not when we're, you know, experiencing lavish blessing. It's easy to extol the blessings of God in the midst of seasons of abundance or ease or, or peace. No, I, I, the most powerful testimony to God comes when the people of God walk with God through the fires of life. Your unbelieving friends who you want to see come to faith in Christ, they'll listen to your words, and your lifestyle is important, but you want to know when they're going to really scrutinize your life? When you're walking through the fire. That's when they get to see God lived out in a very real way in your life. Do you really believe what you've been preaching to me all these years? He's good. He's for you. He's a deliverer. He'll rescue you. He loves you. And deliverance doesn't always mean the avoidance of fire. Man, I, we preached through uh, Hebrews uh, uh, just this previous year. And uh, there's this famous chapter in the book of Hebrews. It's called the, 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 like the chapter of the Hall of Faith. Um, and it's, it's, it's the author of Hebrews talking about all these faithful people that have come before in the history of Israel. And at the very end, he starts to begin, he kind of focuses on a bunch of unique people up until verse 32. And by the time he gets to 32, he's like, there's so many stories of faith I could share with you. I'm just going to start rattling off a bunch. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11:32 through the end of the chapter. He says, what more shall I say? 
we're talking about people who've lived faithful lives. What more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. So we, we read these stories of great faithful victory in the name of God. And God be the glory. These are faithful people who experience victory in their earthly circumstances to God be the glory. Awesome. Then in the middle of verse 35, his tone changes a bit. However, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even claims and even chains rather. And imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. The last sentence says of these men and women who by faith believed in God's love and care that even though they were not delivered miraculously, the world was not worthy of them. And we see that God, in his sovereign will, as we unpacked last week, sometimes chooses to deliver from earthly circumstances, and sometimes he chooses not to. One theologian I've been studying, or I've been using in this study, is a guy named Rodney Stortz. I'm going to read to you a quote that he had in his commentary about this text. He said, these people in Hebrews 11, these are special people in God's Hall of Fame. We make stars out of those with seemingly miraculous cures. They're the ones we interviewed. Theirs are the books we read. They are the ones sought out as special speakers at conferences. They are the ones we put in our Hall of Fame. But the Lord's Hall of Fame is made up of those special people who maintain trust in God's sovereign plan through the darkest times and the deepest valleys. They're the ones who are not delivered except by death. And all these, Daniel goes on to say, or Hebrews goes on to say, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And we have so many faithful saints just to look to in our contemporary lives. I think of Joni, Joni Erickson Tata. who's an incredible, incredible witness to Jesus. Author, speaker, leader, paralyzed at 17 from the neck down. I read this week that she wrote, when life is rosy, we may slide by with knowing about Jesus, with imitating him and quoting him and speaking of him, but only in suffering will we know Jesus. Suffering is arguably God's choicest tool in shaping the character of Christ in us, she says. I had a, a funeral that I officiated yesterday of a friend, and I got to speak of the ultimate deliverance. My friend died in a way that none of us wanted to see him die. He died suddenly and early and unexpected, and that's very sad. But how awesome that as we gathered to memorialize him yesterday, his family and friends, we got to speak of the ultimate deliverance that he experienced. Whole and healed in the presence of the living God because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And today as we gather here, he's experiencing deliverance in the fullest sense. I think of those in my life and those in the church who I've seen over the years who have the most powerful ministries, often it flows from the, the fiery experiences in their lives. Often the wounds we bear from the fiery furnace experiences of our lives form the road book or the playbook or the means by which we're able to speak into other people's lives. It earns you a unique voice with others. This way, 
God can sometimes begin to bring us in this life images and pictures and droplets of his redemptive work as we are able to minister out of those wounds in our life for the glory of God to others. And we get to begin to see what it looks like to live on mission. Remember that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, they had a word for the world. God sent them into exile as his witnesses for the good of the world. You and I are God's exiles. We've been sent into the world. We've been sent to be on mission for Jesus. I mean, we take that really seriously as a church. We want to do everything we can to help equip and, and, and position our church to, to live on mission as well as we possibly can in the world around us. I know we've talked about it, but I encourage you that just in a couple of weeks, uh, November 11th and 12th, the Saturday and Sunday, is going to be our, our first ever missions weekend. And we're not just doing that because you're supposed to do it. We're doing that because we want to continue to give a, a framework and understanding for the men and women of our church what it looks like for you and for me and for us as a church to live on mission for God, to be, to be the kinds of exiles in this world that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. We have a word for the world, both here in Medford and to the ends of the earth. And so we spend a whole weekend coming up. As we wrap up chapter four in three weeks, we're going to spend a whole weekend as a church talking about how we can live on mission for Jesus. I encourage you to put that in your calendar. Please be a part of that weekend. Our text tells us today that God is present with his own in the fire and he sees them through. And as I look at this chapter, there's so much gospel in this chapter. Even though this was written 600 years before Jesus, there's so much gospel in this chapter. I mean, just the language, the, the, this image was set up in the plain and we see that in the New Testament, Jesus was set up on the cross. People bowed down to the set-up image in the plain. We have one who was lifted up on a cross, who was set up on a cross, who saves us and redeems us and is worthy of our worship. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were casted into a, a fiery furnace that, that could not hold them. And they walked out alive by the power of God. After enduring the fire of the cross, Jesus was cast into a tomb that could not hold him. And he walked out alive. We see all this imagery of the gospel in this chapter. One could make the argument that Jesus was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Many authors and commentators have said that the fourth man in the fire was a pre-incarnate Jesus. Before they knew his name was Jesus, it was Jesus. I like to think that's the case, but ultimately we don't know. We know it was a divine intervention, whether it was Jesus himself or an angel of the Lord. What we do know is that God is present with his own in the fire. And he sees them through. Which means we're never alone. But you know who was alone? You know, there's only been one person ever in the history of humanity who was truly and utterly alone. Do you know who it was? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. He's the only person who's ever been truly alone. Matthew's gospel records for us those moments of Jesus on the cross where he's hanging on the cross in the sixth hour and there's darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemeshabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was set up on a cross where he suffered in utter isolation for you and for me. Suffering under the wrath of your sin and my sin. He was laid in a tomb where he forever put to death sin and death and he walked out alive. And because he's alive today, and seated at the right hand of the Father, you and me, we can know now that we will never, ever be alone. We can know that whatever fire we may, may be in, he is there with us. We have another one in the fire with us, as that song says. There's another in the fire. 
and we can know that we are never alone because Christ was alone for us. Amen? The final words that Jesus recorded in Matthew's gospel are simply this, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age church. Could it be that the fires in your life are actually the hand of God at work in your life, bringing in love the flame of refinement into your life so that the impurities in your life rise to the surface to be skimmed off in sanctification so that you can look more like Jesus for the glory of God. Amen? Father, we are grateful for this text, for the opportunity we have week in and week out to sit under the authority of this word. And God, I pray that as we consider this true historical event that actually happened in in human history, God, as we consider these words that you inspired, that you wrote through Daniel, God, as we consider them today in our world, God, that you would utilize the truth contained therein and how this text points to who you are, God. You would use this to, to embolden us and to encourage us, to remind us that, God, you are present with, with us in the fire. And you'll see us through, God. I pray for those men and women here today who maybe find themselves in a season of suffering or their own personal fire, that, God, you would remind them that they aren't alone in that place. And God, I pray right now for those men and women at the, uh, around the globe, as we talk about experiencing the furnace of our daily lives here in the West or in America where we have religious freedom and protections that prevent us from the crushing effects of, of persecution. God, there are brothers and sisters right now in China, in Saudi Arabia, around the world under oppression who are worshiping you today under the threat of death. Oh God, I pray for our brothers and sisters the ends of the earth today, God, that you would remind them today that you are present with them. Even when the the, the fiery implication of, of persecution threatens them from all sides, God, remind them that you are with them in the fire and you will see them through, God. Would you continue to grow your church, God? Would you take those wounds that we bear, those scars that we bear from the fire experiences in our life, God, would you help us to begin to see those as a means by which you have uniquely qualified us to to, to live on mission for you. God, rather than, than lament over the wounds in our life, God, as we entrust them to you, God, would you bring healing, but also give us a vision for how it is you called us to, to, through those very wounds, you have given us a unique ministry to those around us. God, may we not keep that wisdom to ourselves, but God, we you use it for your glory and for the sake of your church. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.